We praise you, Lord. You orchestrate everything in the world. You're in complete control. And though everything looks like chaos at times, we know that you will turn it into good. And so we bow to you now. We know someday every knee will bow and every tongue confess. But we voluntarily bow to you now and praise you. And we ask that you would teach us from your word. We see the first coming of Jesus and the triumphal entry. And we want to learn about this, but we also want to praise you like they did as you came into Jerusalem. And then learn what your second coming will be like as well. So teach us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, turn to Mark chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11, page 576 in the Bibles that we give away. And we're going through the... Just raise your hand if you need one, okay? Uh, We're going through Mark verse by verse, and we're at the king's arrival. Okay, now I am going to allow you to choose for the sake of being politically correct, okay? If you had to, one of the last three presidents, we'll just say that, okay? So you get to choose one of the last three presidents that we've had. If they were going to come over to your house for dinner, okay? Got it? You got the one picked in your mind? Okay. What would you prepare for them? Okay, so you think about that, okay? What would you prepare for them? Now, if Jesus was going to arrive at your house tomorrow, what would you do? You know, usually leftovers is not the right answer, but I'll tell you what, our leftovers would actually work out really well right now because I'm gaining weight from this holiday. Uh, Okay, so you got it, right? See, Jesus entered Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry, which we celebrate on the Sunday before Easter, on Palm Sunday, uh, but we're in the passage, that passage today, okay? And, but Jesus will also enter Jerusalem again on the second triumphal entry, a day that we anticipate as we cry out, Maranatha, come Lord. Let's read our passage, Mark chapter 11, verse 1. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it and will send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street tied by a door. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? They answered them, just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. They brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So let's look at the king's arrival and ask the question, do you long for the second coming? Okay. 
First of all, we see in verses one through six that Jesus is in control. He's actually about to enter Jerusalem. He's fulfilling prophecy. He's in control. We see that with the donkey. He knows he's going to his death, but he's even in control of that. And that is very important to know. It's good news for us to know that he is in control, especially in these difficult times that we're experiencing. And so Jesus is in control. Now, it starts out, the triumphal entry, at the Mount of Olives. You see here, it says that he's at Bethphage and Bethany. Bethany is a small town where some of his friends actually lived, and we'll see that he goes back to Bethany in verse 11 at the end of the day, and that's where he'll be staying. But here it starts out this approach to Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, and that is very, very important. This is a very significant place, so I wanna read some of the things that have taken place at the Mount of Olives, okay? The Mount of Olives rises about 200 feet higher than Mount Zion. Its crest is less than a mile directly east of Jerusalem. Now, for those of you who went to Israel with us, you remember that uh, you had, uh, the, we were on the Mount of Olives, and then you had the valley, and then you have uh, Mount Zion, and you have the Temple Mount, etc. and you can, you're, we're actually looking down upon it, so you can relate to this, and uh, that's where we were worshiping God, an incredible experience of worship there, okay? But... Uh, It says, it is known for its many olive trees. We saw many of the olive trees there. Its slopes were the path of David's retreat from Jerusalem to escape capture by Absalom, 2 Samuel 15. On this mount, Solomon grieved God by erecting idols for his foreign wives to worship, 1 Kings 11. Ezekiel witnessed the glory of God on the Mount of Olives, Ezekiel 11, 23. Jesus, the son of David, made his royal entry into Jerusalem from here, our passage in Mark, but also Matthew 21, Luke 19, and John 12. All four Gospels mention this uh, triumphal entry. On this mount, Jesus wept over the disobedience and blindness of Jerusalem, Luke 19. The disciples witnessed Jesus' ascension into glory on this mount, Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1. So he ascended uh, in Acts 1, 10 through 11. Jesus said he would come again in the same way that they had watched him go. So he's on the Mount of Olives. He ascends up to heaven. He tells them, I will come back the same way I left. So very, very dramatic, but also to the same Place. And we know it's the same place because that's exactly what Zechariah 14, verses 4 and 5 tells us, that he comes back to this place, his feet hit the Mount of Olives, and it actually splits into two. Okay, We're going to read that passage more later. But uh, so very, very significant place. And because this is where he's entering, but also this is where he's going to come back. Do you long for the second coming? Now, so he comes, they're entering, they get the donkey ready. He tells them, you want to go into the village, you get the donkey. Uh, If anybody says anything, here's what's going to happen, okay? Now, some people have suggested that this was a pre-planned thing. So the question is, was it a miracle or a preset plan? 
Well, we have no indication that he's even been here, so to, to say that he set this pre-plan to go get this thing is kind of far-fetched. I really like the answer of Jerry Vines on this. He says, when Jesus predicted everything that would take place, he was asserting his deity. Some interpreters of this passage say that this was not a miracle. They say that Jesus had already arranged to get this colt. I find that explanation unsatisfactory. When Jesus sent Simon Peter down to the Sea of Galilee, he said, go down there, catch a fish, open its mouth, and you will find a coin. Did Jesus arrange that, that with the fish ahead of time? No. In these things, Jesus Christ was demonstrating his omniscience. And so we see he's in control of this. And Jesus fulfills the prophecy. This is a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9. Now, Matthew's rendition, he actually quotes Zechariah 9. So why don't we go ahead and read it? Look at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. uh, This is a fascinating passage. Zechariah is an apocalyptic writing, very similar to the book of Revelation. And it says in Zechariah 9, 9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so we see this prediction. This is what Messiah would do. Jesus is fulfilling this. But I want you to read on. Look at verse 10. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, the bow of war will be removed, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. No more need for war stuff. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. So here we see, fascinatingly, in Zechariah, he's predicting first the first coming, where he's going to come riding on a donkey, but he sees also the second coming in this because he's predicting that he will bring total peace, no more war, where he will reign and have dominion from sea to sea. And so, and this is, this is something we see throughout the Old Testament prophetic books. When they spoke of Messiah, they would speak of his two comings, but as if it was all one thing. It's almost like they were looking from a distance, like you see a mountain, perhaps they were a long ways away, and they, they saw the Mount of Olives and Mount Zion, but didn't see the valley in between, okay? They didn't see that it actually happens with two Comings. And so the two comings are mixed together. This is not just the only passage that does this. There are many others. Look at Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. We see another example of this where he predicts the, the first and second coming of Messiah. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. He says, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. 
The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. You see, it begins, a child will be born, a son will be given to us. And this was, is uh, referenced in the Gospel of Matthew at the, uh, when Jesus was born, right? A child will become, but then he says, the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called mighty God. And he will reign from sea to sea. His vast kingdom will be everywhere. So we see this is what happens in the two comings of Jesus. Uh, let me read from, this is actually an ancient commentary of, uh, from ancient uh, Jewish people, Jew, Jew, Jewish people that were not Christians, their commentary on Zechariah chapter 9. It's fascinating what they saw long, long ago. Uh, Behold, your king shall come to you. It is impossible to interpret this except as referring to the king Messiah, as it is stated, and his rule shall be from sea to sea. We do not find that Israel had such a ruler during the days of the second temple. That was Rashi. And riding a donkey, this is a symbol of humility. He will ride a donkey not because he has no other steed to ride upon, for the whole world will be under his rule, but to demonstrate humility and to show that Israel will no longer require horses and chariots, as in verse 10. The Talmud notes the differences between the account given here of the coming of the Messiah and that given in Daniel 7.13. In Daniel it is written, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man came. While Zechariah prophesies here that the Messiah will appear as a humble person, riding a donkey. The Talmud explains that if Israel is worthy, the Messiah will come on the clouds of heaven. But if Israel is unworthy, the Messiah will come as a humble person. See, they're wrestling with this. We have this, he's coming as conquering king, riding on the clouds. He's coming on a donkey. He's coming humbly. How are we to understand all of these things? And they wrestled with this, and they just assumed that maybe he comes one way if Israel's good and one way if Israel's bad. They don't see, however, he comes twice. The first and second coming of the Lord at this very place, the Mount of Olives. And so we long for the second coming. What a day that will be. Now in this initial triumphal entry, he is openly declaring himself as the Messianic king because everybody knew Zechariah 9.9. And so as they saw him purposely coming on this donkey, they knew he was declaring, I am the Messiah. The Messianic secret is no longer a secret. It is, it is wide open, and by the way, within less than a week, he's crucified. He knew that that was coming, but he's openly declaring himself as Messiah. And so we see in verses 1 through 6 that Jesus is in control. And in verses 7 through 11, we see that Jesus humbly comes as Savior and King. He humbly comes on the foal of a donkey, riding on the donkey. This was a sign of of humility. Uh, let me read again from Daniel Aiken's commentary. He's quoting Sinclair Ferguson, who says, Think for a moment what Mark's record would convey to those who read it first. The Christians in Rome. That's who he wrote his gospel to. 
No doubt many of them had seen generals enter Rome in triumph to receive the accolades of victory. How stark the contrast between Roman glory and Jesus' humility must have seemed. How mighty and powerful the sword and political power by contrast with King Jesus. Yet we know that his kingdom was established while the glory that was Rome disappeared into oblivion. We know that what Jesus did in Jerusalem established a kingdom which would outlast all the kingdoms of this world and break in pieces every man-centered kingdom which sets itself against it. Jesus had come to take his throne but had committed himself to begin his reign from a cross. Jesus comes as Savior and King. And so it's critical that we see this in both the first and second triumphal entries. What is he saying? Jesus is humble. Jesus is humble. In George Klein's commentary on Zechariah, he says, the most important conclusion about the significance of the donkey in Zechariah 9 is the very different connotation the donkey had compared to the horse. Horses represented one of the most advanced military weapons of the day. The constant threat of military action continually tempted Israel to trust in her weaponry or that of her allies rather than placing her faith in the Lord. Several passages pointedly remind Israel that trusting in horses for salvation will always prove useless. The Lord's pleasure is not in the strength of the horse. Verse 10 alludes to the fact that God's ways are not man's ways when it comes to bringing peace to the kingdom. God promised to eliminate the chariot, the war horse, and the battle bow, the three primary assets in any ancient armory. The Lord had once created a peaceable, orderly universe, but it was shattered by disobedience to his command in Genesis 1 through 3. In the coming day of eschatological renewal and recreation, the Lord will restore his creation to what he had originally intended when he first fashioned it. Jesus is humble. Jesus is the one who washed his disciples' feet. He is the one who came to serve, not to be served. We see this humility prophesied in Isaiah 42. Look at this passage. Isaiah 42 is a, also a classic passage on Messiah, one of the servants, the first of the four servant songs. In Isaiah 42, it says, This is my servant. I strengthened him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow weak or be discouraged until he has established justice on earth. The coasts and islands will wait for his instruction. Notice here, though he's humble, though he doesn't even bruise, uh, break a bruised reed or put out a smoldering wick in his gentleness, he brings justice to the nations. How is he going to do that? 
Well, ultimately, in the first coming, he brings justice by dying on the cross for our sins. You see, he paid the penalty we were supposed to pay for our sins. And then, so he transfers our sins upon himself. He pays the penalty, but then he transfers his perfect righteousness to our account if we place our faith in Christ. And so therefore, his perfect righteousness is put into our account, and so justice is done, but yet we are acquitted. This is how he brings justice, the first coming. But in the second coming, he will bring justice by wiping out evil and bringing judgment on the day of judgment. And so we see here, he comes in humility. So let's follow in his footsteps. What do you say? Let's be humble ourselves. What does it mean to be humble? It means that you can admit that you might be wrong sometimes. Children and parents, when you're in an argument, sometimes, parents, the kids could be right. It's okay to listen to them. But kids, the parents have been living for a good long while and do have some wisdom that it's worth listening to. Husbands and wives, have you ever fought? Have you ever been wrong? Humbly admit you could be wrong. It's okay. It diffuses the tension. Mask wearers and non-mask wearers. Do we really know exactly what's going on? Can we at least be humble enough to accept one another? Look at Paul. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I find this passage remarkable. Now, it's the great love passage, but we're not going to read about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we see this admission of Paul himself in verse 9. He says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. Paul, the apostle, who spoke and wrote the very words of God, says we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. He recognized that he didn't know everything. But when the perfect came, and he's obviously referring to the second coming of Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes back, then we shall know. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. But then, face to face. Now I know in part but then I will know fully as I am fully known. He longed for the day because things were uh, like a mirror, like looking, and their mirrors were not crystal clear like our mirrors, okay? So he's looking, and it's fuzzy, it's hazy, he's not sure about everything because, and therefore we can be humble enough to say, I don't know everything. 
I could be wrong. But someday, face to face, when we see Jesus again, what a day. Do you long for the second coming? Now it says here, as we see the crowd, that they proclaimed Hosanna in the highest. Verse 9, it says, those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so we see that he comes as Savior. Hosanna literally means save now. Now this phrase became, by the time of Jesus, an expression of praise. So it's praise to the God who now saves. Here's the question, though. Are you saved? Are you saved? Do you know for sure that you're saved? It's absolutely critical. The Bible says that if you repent of your sins and you place your faith in Christ and him alone for your salvation, outwardly expressing that faith in baptism, you shall be saved. Are you trusting in him? Have you repented of your sins? We, this, there's no greater, more important question because Jesus came to save the first coming. And by the way, if you're saved, praise is the proper response to the coming king. Can you picture the event? You see, this crowd had been with him for a while. This is the same group that was following him. They're on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And this was what the pilgrims did. They went from Galilee, this group coming down from Galilee to Jerusalem. They're walking with him. They saw him heal the sick. Remember the blind guy last week? They saw the guy who couldn't see then he could see he's jumping up and down, praising God. They're with him. And then they see him get on the donkey. He is Messiah. Woo! This is what they're thinking. This is a joyous day. This is that crowd. This is not the same crowd. The five days later, we'll be calling out, crucify him. That was a crowd from Jerusalem. This is a different crowd. This crowd, they're excited. They're thrilled. They're wondering, wow. Here's the Messiah. But full salvation comes at the second coming. Jesus came first to die so that we could be forgiven of our sins and so that we could have power over sin. But we don't receive the escape from the very presence of sin until Jesus returns. And so the full salvation comes at the second coming. And so we long for the second coming. And then it says Jesus brings his kingdom. Verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus brings his kingdom, but not like what was expected. You have triumphalism versus defeatism. Some see the triumphalist State, he came, therefore, no more problems in the world because we are victorious and we'll always have health and wealth and everything else that you could possibly need. But that's not true. But the opposite, defeatism, that we just have to kind of waller around and go, woe is me until Jesus comes back. <laughs> it's somewhere in the middle, isn't it? Because Jesus 
poured out his Holy Spirit, we can experience great victories. We can experience incredible things as the book of Acts lays out, but also with troubles and difficulties and death. So it's now and not yet. It's now that we have peace in our soul because we have peace with God, Romans 14, 17. It's now because we do see the release of captives who are in bondage to addictions, depression, and hopelessness, Luke 4, 18 and 19. But it's not yet. We don't see the cessation of war. We don't experience the full shalom and the utopia to come that we see in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. At the end of the book, here's what it's going to be like. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. That's what we long for, the second coming. And then our passage kind of ends anticlimactically. Was he just king for a day? Did you see that, verse 11? He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Done. Daniel Aiken says, it would seem that this would have been the moment for him to claim and receive his messianic throne and kingdom. Amazingly, not one thing happens. The enthusiastic crowds have mysteriously vanished. Was he only king for a day? Jesus, with no fanfare whatsoever, leaves with the 12. But I don't want to finish here, okay? Because there's two triumphal entries. I would like to just briefly look at the second triumphal entry because it's going to be at the same place, at the Mount of Olives, entering in Jerusalem. The second coming, look at Revelation chapter 19. Verse 11, we could read the whole chapter, but we don't have time. So let's just look at Revelation chapter 19, where he doesn't come on a donkey. He comes on a white horse. Verse 11, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. We see this described back in Zechariah chapter 14. Let's look at that now, as I promised. Zechariah, the end of the book, finishes with this great coming of Messiah. It actually says of God himself, and we know from the New Testament because Jesus is God. Verse 3, it says, Then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, 
which faces Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives will be split in half from east to west, forming a huge valley, so that half the mountain will move to the north and half to the south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for the valley of the mountains will extend to Azal. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day there will be no light. The sunlight and moonlight will diminish. It will be a unique day known only to the Lord without day or night, but there will be light at evening. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea, in summer and winter alike. On that day, the Lord will become king over the whole earth, the Lord alone and his name alone. And we know from Acts chapter 1, 9 through 11, that it is prophesied that just as he left, he will come back. He left from the Mount of Olives. We see in Zechariah, it predicts that he will come back on the Mount of Olives. So we are to take this literally. This is going to be an incredible event. (laughs) Can you imagine being there? Because we get to come with him, right? (laughs) The holy saints, the holy ones, Come with him. We see this incredible event. Okay, now he will come in vengeance. And this is why we must recognize uh, that he comes in vengeance. Luke chapter 4, 18 and 19, interestingly, Jesus reads the scroll of Isaiah in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. But he, as he's reading it, you know, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to heal the sick and to bring the, uh, the, uh, the year of the Lord's favor, speaking of the year of Jubilee. But then he stops. He literally quits reading halfway through the sentence. He stops in mid-sentence. He misses the second part that says, and the day of God's judgment. You see, he stops because his first coming came to only bring the year of Jubilee, the time of salvation when people could be saved. But his second coming, he will bring the day of the Lord, the day of vengeance. He will bring that day that it will be a terror for those who don't know Jesus Christ. And so in the meantime, we recognize that vengeance is the Lord's. It's not something we need to be trying to get. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, Romans 12, 18 through 21. We're to live at peace if, as far as it is up to us to live at peace. We are not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil by good. That's what we do in between the two comings. That's how we're to live. Leave the vengeance to him. True justice, full justice doesn't come in this age. Justice will be served. But today, we don't want justice. We want mercy. And so we call out for mercy. He will come bringing peace. I love Malachi. Let's read Malachi chapter 4. We'll read the whole chapter. It's pretty short. Malachi chapter 4, we see that dystopia is dissolved. Look at what it says. For look, 
The day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out playfully and playfully jump like calves from the stall. Well, I gotta try that again. It's kind of fun. We should practice this. This is what we're going to be doing, right? That's what it says. You will trample the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I am preparing, says the Lord of armies. Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Now notice this is another passage where he speaks of the first and second coming because Elijah came according to Jesus. He said John the Baptist was the Elijah to come. And yet we also know from the New Testament that Elijah is going to come in the end. He'll be one of the two witnesses at the very end in Revelation. I think it's chapter 11. And so when Elijah comes... Before this great and terrible day, it says he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. The prodigals will come home before that great and terrible day takes place. Briefly, let me compare the two arrivals according to a chart the first coming of Jesus, he came to die. The second coming of Jesus, he will come to reign. He came on a little donkey, first coming. He will come on a warrior horse, second coming. He came as a humble servant. He will come as an exalted king. He came in weakness. He will come in power. He came to save. He will come to judge. He came in love. He will come in wrath. He came as deity veiled. He will come as deity revealed. He came with the 12 disciples. He will come with an army of angels. He came to bring peace. He will come and make war. He has, was given a crown of thorns. He will receive a crown of royalty. He came as the suffering servant. He will come as the king of kings and lord of lords. Few bowed before the great king the first time he came. However, every knee will bow when he comes again. Are you looking? Are you waiting? Are you ready? Jesus is in control. He fulfilled many prophecies and he will fulfill the rest at his second coming. Let me finish and read by reading the second to last verse in the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are longing for the second coming. When Jesus comes riding on the horse, and he wipes out evil, and he establishes his kingdom. 
and he reigns in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Oh, what a day that will be. Help us. Help us until then. Give us strength that we need as we see the first coming. Help us to respond like these, these, these people did with praise and worship. Help us by giving us strength to endure whatever we have to face in this life as we wait patiently for your return, Jesus. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship our King.